0: And uh, so, you guys laugh. You only encourage me. But, uh, um, but it, was, it was kind of stark. But really grateful for a good weekend last weekend. Also, had the opportunity to meet with a church from just across the Ohio River in Paducah, Kentucky, who I anticipate will make a, a partnership commitment to help us give life to Advent Church for South Loop. And, and uh, deeply, deeply grateful uh, for and humbled by that reality. You know, one of the things I discovered about myself a few years ago is that I realized I was becoming an old coot when, uh, I know some of you doubt that's even possible, right? Um, I discovered I was becoming an old coot when I found myself saying, I can remember when. I can remember when. And I've also found myself in, in recent years uh, challenging people who were younger with their notion that, that there was some time long ago. When I was still serving in eastern North Carolina, there was a young man in a church there who was in his mid-twenties who, um, I don't even remember what he was talking about, but I remember he said something about back in the day. And I said, dude, you are not old enough to say back in the day. you got to be at least 40 before you can say back in the day. Uh, there is no back in the day when you're in the mid-twenties. And so that sort of thing just opened my eyes to to the reality. I am becoming... An old coot. Cindy might tell you I have been for a long time. Um, But one of the things I found myself saying that about recently was about a vehicle that I read about. Now, one of the things you may not know about me is I love, 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 love to the extent that a human can love inanimate objects. I love cars. And I love new cars, old cars. I love the car business. I love to see what's coming out new. Again, back in the day when I was younger, my dad would take my brother and me and we'd hit all the car car lots in Charlotte in October when they used to roll out all the new models. And we would study every detail of these cars to see what was different. In fact, we did that so much when I was about 14, I was determined that when I got my driver's license, I was going to get a 74 Monte Carlo with swivel bucket seats because it was in my estimation the most beautiful automobile on the market at the time. I see somebody else seems to think that was the case too. That means you're probably an old coot too if you can remember uh, a 74 Monte Carlo. Well I found myself recently, um, some of the reading that I do that's apart from study of God's Word uh, and apart from news, I'm a news junkie as well, but I, I read about cars probably more than I should and I was really fascinated recently to read about the the new uh Lincoln Navigator. Now if you don't know what that is, then you know just thank God for your ignorance and and uh and forget it. But a Lincoln Navigator is a whopping big SUV. Something so big I just can't imagine trying to drive one of those things around Chicago in the city. And but the thing that really fascinated me is how big a hit that thing is in the market. It's it is going crazy. And then the, the really odd thing to me is that the highest end version with all the stuff in it is what's really selling the most. And I began to look at it just out of curiosity. And I nearly lost my breath. You load one of those things up and it's over $100,000 for a truck. For a truck. And my immediate thought was, I can remember when <laughs> one of those October's my daddy took my brother and me out to a car lot. We went to Cadillac dealer in Charlotte, Arnold Palmer Cadillac, and I can still remember seeing a late '70s Cadillac Sedan DeVille, luxed out with yellow leather interior. Again. Some of the other old coots in the room, you remember when you could get leather in such unusual colors like yellow, and I still remember, for reasons I just cannot comprehend, somewhat forty years later now, that that Lux Stout Cadillac had a sticker price of eleven thousand dollars. My friends, you can't even buy an entry vehicle for eleven grand new today. It just ain't out there. And I looked at this thing and thinking about that and thinking about this in a hundred grand for a truck. So what does that have to do with us? You may rightly wonder. If you've bought a new vehicle in recent years, and maybe it's been a while since you've looked at any, or even if you bought a used vehicle in recent years and it's been a use or a few years before you bought one, then you understand what I'm talking about. We call it sticker shock. Look at it and say, My gracious, how in the world can they get that? I honestly wonder how the market sustains it sometimes. How in the world? Convince me this thing's worth 100 grand. I don't have it to buy a new vehicle, but even if I did, I don't think I would. 100 grand. Sticker shock, we call it. And it's not just limited to automobiles, there are other things we look at. You know, when Cindy and I moved from uh, from Eastern North Carolina in a small, tiny town of 2,500 people where we sold a 2,800 square foot house for $115,000 and we're happy to get it. We were shocked. We had sticker shock looking at new home prices in the valley, we called it, in Phoenix. And then those of you who have been here a long time, you understand that same sense of sticker shock we had when we went to look to buy here in Chicago. Sticker shock, an unbelievably high price. Again, what does that have to do with us you know, over the last several weeks as we've journeyed through the book of Joshua with the children of Israel, we've seen some pretty substantial accomplishments, some great victories. You know, just crossing the Jordan was substantial. The people exercising their faith to say, we're going to take this land that God had promised. And last, or a couple of weeks ago, we saw the destruction of Jericho. A stunning victory. We've seen the victory Even amongst the people and the fact that some of the people who were in this promised land were now terrified of them. Once mocked and derided as they were wandering in the wilderness, now other people fear this great people of God. And as Mike read for us earlier, what we find in chapter 7 is what I call sticker shock. We find an instance of sin... And we also read of the consequences. And it's at that I want us to look this morning as we consider the shockingly high price of sin. Notice with me those characteristics of sin. First, sin is unfaithfulness to God. Foundationally we must understand this reality. Sin is unfaithfulness to God. Look at verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Notice with me the language here. It's very enlightening. The Hebrew word that's translated as broke faith here or in the New American Standard acted unfaithfully is the same word you find back in Numbers 5 to refer to adultery. Let that sink in for a moment. The record of God's word says that this thing that seemed so small to Akan was actually a matter of Of spiritual adultery. It was a matter of. Betraying himself. And betraying the Lord. Betraying his family. Betraying his people. It was a matter of. Unfaithfulness. To God. If you'll remember. At the very end of Joshua chapter 6. And if you don't remember. I encourage you this afternoon. Go back and read it. You find that God had given. Instruction. For. Everything to be burned except for the gold and silver, the precious metals which they would use in the treasury of the Lord for God's people. And what we find is that can sees something that is so appealing to the eye. In addition to taking some of the precious metals for himself and his family, we find that One of those devoted things, the things devoted that is set aside for the purpose of destruction. One of the things he takes is a cloak. And it's a cloak that came from Babylon some 500 miles away. It would have been very unique to him. Something unlike he had ever seen before. Something that was obviously appealing to the eye. And regardless of the fact that he and his family and all the nation of Israel had made the commitment to Joshua. If you remember way back in chapter 1. Again, if you don't remember, go back and read it. They said, all that the Lord says through you, we will do. Well, the Lord has given instruction. Destroy this stuff. There is no indication in the text, and I have no reason to believe, that owning that cloak was inherently bad. That it was somehow inherently wrong to possess. But in this instance, God was sending a message, destroy Jericho. It's not just about seeing the walls fall. It's about, again, if you go back and read the end of chapter 6, it's about wiping these walls. Spoke out. And all that symbolized who they were. Wipe it out, God said. And Achan says, I got a better idea. I'm going to take this thing. Nobody's going to know. I'm going to hide it. My family's going to benefit Friends, sin foundationally is an act of unfaithfulness to God. It is a matter of breaking faith with him. Before he even took that stuff, Icon had a purposed, intentional change of his heart from being obedient to God to fulfilling his own desires. Spiritual adultery. He broke faith. Again, we see that this is a consistent truth. If you remember back when sin was introduced to the human experience in Genesis 3, what was, what was the flow of events? Again, if you go back and read, you find that that they saw That the fruit of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. By the way, nowhere in scripture does it identify it as an apple. It's the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They say it was appealing to the eye. And good for food. It's like, oh, this this is charming. It's desirous. And then that pragmatic excuse it's good for food. Again, while the book of Joshua does not document all of that thought process for Icon, I think it is consistent with biblical truth to expect that this is what happens. He sees the cloak, it's appealing to the eye. And there's precious metals, nobody else is around. You know, It's not 21st century America where there's a You know, a security camera somewhere, and he somehow thinks it's okay to take it. So, what does that have to do with us? My dear friends, we must be on guard, I am convinced, as New Testament believers. You know, Romans 7 tells us that we war against the flesh so long as we are tied to this body and we are limited to this time and place even the redeemed even those who have a regenerate spirit face the battle of the flesh because there will always be those things it might be a relationship it might be a material object it might be the temptation to take advantage of someone whatever it is There is that appeal. It's something that's charming like the cloak. It's something that we often rationalize. But my dear friends, let us not forget this simple truth. That sin is unfaithfulness to God. It is a matter of spiritual adultery. Well, notice the effects. Sin leads to widespread destruction. Sin leads to widespread destruction. Look at verse four. So about 3,000 men went up went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of AI. the men of AI killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now again, in the intervening verses, you see that what happened is that there was this overconfidence of the people. Like we just took down the walls in Jericho by marching around and shouting. And Joshua had sent spies up to Ai to to kind of check it out. see see what the situation is. And they come back and say, ah, this is easy peasy. We don't need to send all the people up there. That's just going to be a waste. We only need a handful. We only need a few thousand to go up there and take AI. And the result you see this widespread destruction. First, one of the things we see is that the people have become overconfident. You know, even though the taking of possessions was something that Achan himself did, the effect of that sin went throughout the the people. There was some mistaken assumption that because they had won this great victory at Jericho... Now it's just going to be a cakewalk. The people had been overconfident. And even worse than that, there was this awful defeat. Now they sent several thousand up. There were only 36 casualties in terms of death. But notice the greater casualty at the end of verse 5. And the hearts of the people Melted and became as water. You know something that's enlightening to me. If you remember back in chapter 5. After uh, the children of Israel had gone across the river. They had consecrated themselves once again. Had reinitiated the, the covenant of circumcision. And we read there. That because the children of Israel had crossed the Jordan River. All the people up and down that, that river and around that region were terrified. And the same word is used in chapter 5. They melted. Their hearts melted. They had lost hope. They had lost spirit. They had given up. Think how stunning this is. All the victories they had seen thus far, again, the falling of Jericho, the destruction, And now they go to to A.I. and have a small city-state like A.I. put this huge throng of people in the grips of fear. They're terrified. They're frightened. My dear friends, beyond the matter of them being frightened, notice that in doing so, they are beginning to act like unbelievers the same reaction to the circumstance that those who are not God's people had such a widespread effect of sin of course is not isolated no greater example of the widespread effects of sin is there than the results of the first sin Romans 5 the Bible tells us that sin has entered the human experience through one man Adam And friends, we still, that widespread destruction from Adam still grips humanity. I've officiated a lot of funerals when I was pastoring in eastern North Carolina. Pastored a lot of older congregations. And in nearly every one of them, I would remind people that death keeps us constantly aware of the effects of sin on humanity. Death was not God's intent for humanity. It is the effect of the sin of one man. And it grips it will grip us all. Lest the Lord return before we draw our last breath, we will all taste the effect of Adam's sin. It's widespread. Some years ago, when before my days of ministry, I was talking with a pastor about some of the decisions he had made in life and how a decision he had made led him to meet his wife and how blessed he had been as a result of that. The temptation he had faced to do something different before that. And I said, well, aren't you glad you chose to be obedient to the Lord. Just think of the lives that would have been affected. And he said to me, I was quite stunned at the time. He said to me, even if I had been disobedient, it wouldn't affected, it would not have affected others. Now, friends, that is a biblically indefensible statement. Our sin always affects other people. It brings widespread destruction. You know, when I was serving in eastern North Carolina, one of the things that used to frustrate me so much as a, as a pastor, as a shepherd, was to see how destructive the sin of gossip was. And how rampant it was within local churches in that part of the country. And I've seen once great churches brought low because of that simple and yet terribly destructive sin. Friends, let us understand. When we are at that moment, when we find ourselves in the, at the crossroads, if you will, that... Akan found himself. When there is something there that is so charming to us. And yet we hear the command of the Lord. In the back of our minds. Let us not believe. That we alone will suffer. If we choose. To commit that spiritual adultery. And to be unfaithful to the lord let us recognize others will be affected and it's typically not just a small handful of folk sin we leads to widespread destruction and notice also that sin causes others to question god look at verse 7 After seeing this defeat, these thousands, handful that had been sent, 36 dead, they come back, they're terrified, they scare the rest of the people in the nation of Israel. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? This is Joshua, the one who, along with Caleb, had told the previous generation of people. Don't, don't pine to go back to Egypt. Remember when they had the opportunity to go in the promised land the first time? And 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, Whoa, the dudes are too big. The cities are too strong. There's no way we can do it. Or when they were at the Red Sea and the people cried up to God, You brought us out here to die? Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? And while Joshua is not talking about going back to Egypt, notice what he is saying. He says, Why were we not content to dwell in a land that was not the land of your promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Joshua says, Why were we not content to live with something that is less than what God has intended for us and God has promised to us? Joshua, the one to whom God had said, Be strong and courageous, the one who had committed himself to leading the nation of Israel to possess the promise. Joshua even says to God What about your reputation? What about your reputation, God? What are you going to do for your great name? Friends, I got to tell you this to me is one of the one of the most shocking parts of the price of sin. That those whom God has called, empowered, encouraged, the one that God has ordained begins to question the Lord Himself. Not because of His own sin, but because of the sin of someone else and the widespread effects of it. Joshua says, God, what are you going to do for your own reputation? We find a similar statement in Psalm 74. Asaph writes, remembering the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of Babylon. O oh God, he says, why have you rejected us forever? How long, O oh God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand? You hear that accusation to God? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? From within your bosom, destroy them, he cries. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause, he challenges the Lord. My dear friends, when, when we, like Icon, find ourselves... Charmed by that thing we know that God has said stay away from. We rationalize the practical benefits of disobedience. Like, Oh, those material resources will be good for my family. When we do that, not only do we see widespread destruction come, but we cause others to question God himself. Back in my high school days, there was a group of five guys who used to hang around together. They weren't the cool kids. They weren't the jocks. They weren't the preps. They just working class guys. Piled around with each other. Did a lot of stupid stuff. Vandalism. Amongst those five young men, there was only one professing believer among them. And what he didn't realize is that through his actions, he was saying to these unbelieving people, these young men that he had opportunity to influence, he says to them, there's really no difference between those who are redeemed And those who aren't. I don't know where all of those guys are today. But the last I talked to them years ago. Not one of those other four. Had made a profession of faith. You see because they had reason to question. The authenticity of redemption the authenticity of regeneration the authenticity of transformation because he never saw any evidence of it in that one who professed Christ my dear friends our sin will not only lead to destruction for others far beyond what we might expect or anticipate but our sin will also cause others to question God even those who are called, ordained, it will cause us, or it will cause others, rather, to question God. Cindy and I were just talking last night about some things we've seen recently on social media, some articles about uh, different things that are happening in our 21st century evangelical world. And my friends, we are seeing that today. That because of the sin often of selfishness, we see people begin to question the authenticity of our faith, the authenticity of transformation, the Authenticity of a claim of righteousness and the pursuit of mercy. Our willingness to do justly as God's word calls upon us to do. Our sin will cause others to question God. The final high cost that leads to the sticker shock of sin is that sin robs us of the opportunity to be part of God's work. Sin robs us of the opportunity to be a part of God's work. Look at verse 25. Joshua said, this is to Achan, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore to this day the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. It's important to recognize what well, Akan and his family lost in addition to their lives. They lost the opportunity to be a part of God's work. Again, for generations, he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants this will be yours. For my great name's sake, for my own glory, he says, but it will be yours. And Akan and his family miss out on that. The promised land in all of its abundance, the land that would give substance to God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not just to possess the land, but through them to be a blessing to the whole world. Icon and his family, they miss out on that. Again, it is A consistent reality. The previous generation of God's people have missed out on this promise because of their sin and rebellion against the Lord. It didn't stop God from being faithful to His promise. That previous generation just died in the desert as they wandered. Buried in various places in the wilderness and they missed out I talked to a pastor friend of mine in North Carolina recently and he shared with me how there was a woman in the church who had had made such a big public deal on social media about her unwillingness to ever give anything of financial support to that church again because that church had given some financial support to the pastor to take a mission trip somewhere. That was her objection. You know, it didn't stop the work of the Lord being done. And frankly, it's not going to stop the work of the Lord being done in that small town where that church is. But you know who's going to miss out? She is. She is. Our sin will rob us of the opportunity to be a part of God's work. We do not possess the power or ability to thwart God's purpose and plan and his will. We don't have it in us. And if we attempt to do that, all we do is miss out. All we do is miss out. Friends, it's never such a great joy to bring a message about sin. It's grievous. I won't sit here and go through a laundry list, but I tell you, I see so much of myself in the actions of our kind. Now I'm grateful to God that for eternity the price is paid. The Bible tells us that for those who are in Christ there is no condemnation. The word also tells us in Romans 8 that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Yet I will also tell you, my friends, as I said a moment ago, and as the word tells us, the battle with the flesh is real. It persists. And when we choose to satisfy our own wishes, wants, and desires, we will pay a higher price than we expect or intend or desire. That brings us to the bottom line. The price of sin is always higher than advertised. Friends, I do not use exclusive words like always and never very frequently. But on the authority of God's word, I'll tell you, the price of sin is always higher than advertised. We must also face the reality that our sin does not merely affect us, but it affects others. And if there is no other grievous reality, let us remember this, that our sin is first, foremost, and always an offense to God. It is grievous to Him. If you're here this morning and maybe you're caught in the middle of some struggle with the flesh, maybe it's someone you know, a professing believer who has chosen to take that appealing cloak for him or herself perhaps god would use this truth to equip you to challenge someone not to act as some sense of uh, or act with some sense of superiority or as an authority over them but as one who has likely experienced the same realities To call them back. To call them to repentance. To call them to experience the blessings of being a part of God's work. To experience the blessing of ongoing sweet fellowship with the Lord. To experience the blessings that are ours when we trust God rather than act unfaithfully to him. and My dear friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, maybe you're here because you think church is a good thing to be a part of and a good thing to do, I would affirm that truth. But my dear friends, just hanging around church people is not going to make us pleasing in the sight of the Lord. No good work we can do is going to satisfy him. We are inherently sinful. As I shared before, the sin of Adam afflicts us all. It causes us to act unjustly, to act in ways that are selfish and, matter, and a matter of spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to the Lord who has bought us. And my dear friends, if you've never trusted Christ, I will tell you, that's all you can possibly do. You find yourself enslaved to that. And I would simply call upon you to trust Christ. To know the joy of the freedom that comes with knowing that God's anger was satisfied at the cross. And the death of Christ. The pouring out of his blood. As he paid the price for your sin and for my sin. Will you bow your heads with me this morning.